for most venture capitalists, including myself, I think we're constantly looking for what is the next big thing. We're looking for kind of the next generation of visionary entrepreneurs that are riding the wave of these trends of disruption at the same time that also have a track record of being able to execute. Welcome to a bit cryptic podcast where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now it's time to get a bit cryptic. On today's episode, we talk with Jay Um, co-founder of TransLink Capital, an early stage venture capital firm with strong ties to leading tech companies in Asia. Jay ran Samsung Ventures, which was the venture capital division of Samsung. Jay obviously is an expert on the venture capital space. So in this episode, we break down what goes through the head of a venture capitalist when assessing potential investments, the differences between tokens and equity from an investor standpoint, why Jay thinks it's smart to invest in cryptocurrency despite and even because of its volatility, and we break down Jay's three principles for investing intelligently. Let's get right to it. Hey, Kryptonauts. Right now we're here with Jay Um of TransLink Capital. This is your host, Jeff Peterson, and I'm here with my co-host, Rob Peterson. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for bringing me back. Yeah, it's great to have you on the mic, Rob. I'm glad we pulled you out of your hole. <laughs> it's great to have you on the podcast today, Jay. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Rob. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, so are we. We're super excited to have someone your caliber here. It's my pleasure. So let's start learning a little bit about this person that we're interviewing. Who Who is Jay Um? Tell us about your background. Sure. If you want me to start from the beginning, I was born and raised in Korea, in Seoul. Originally studied chemistry, did a master's in biochem, and basically after a semester in the lab, realized I wasn't cut out to be a research scientist after all. Tried to switch professions and ended up in management consulting, where I worked in uh, Seoul, Beijing, and New York. Came out to California in 97 during the peak of the dot-com bubble to get my MBA degree. And uh, upon graduation, was fortunate to find a venture capital opportunity. At the time, they were looking for freshly minted MBAs to figure out these dot-com business plans. And so I've been doing venture capital since 99. So it's been about 18 years since I've been doing this. So you you have become a venture capital veteran by this point. I guess you could say that. Yeah, if you do the one thing as long as I've been doing. It's been interesting, though, because things have evolved. And past uh, few years, I've been fortunate to uh, invest in some interesting companies around the blockchain crypto space. And that's how I've uh, gotten to meet you guys, I guess. Yeah, so full disclosure, Jay is a advisor for BTOKEN, and both Rob and I work with BTOKEN as well. So that's that's how we're all connected through the through the vine. Yep. So let's let's fast forward now to TransLink Capital. Uh-huh. Tell me a little bit about that and, and what led you to start it and, and your guys' focus and everything. Right. Prior to TransLink, and this was back in 2003, I was recruited by Samsung that had started to commute to Silicon Valley, looking for deal flow, looking to build their network in the venture community. And at the time, because I was one of the very few Korean nationals in the industry, they eventually recruited me to basically start and lead Samsung Ventures. For about four years, I I built the team, led the group, and we were very active investors from kind of the post kind of um, dot-com bubble meltdown from 2003 to 2007. And we were very active as a strategic investor, did a lot of good deals, had some good exits. 
and um, was able to benefit from some of the uh, pros of uh, corporate investing, where you can have very knowledgeable business units validate the markets and technologies of the startups that you were doing due diligence on, and then make those investments. So those were great. At the same time, there's a lot of challenges with the corporate investment model because typically the interests are slightly misaligned with the other financial investors. There's always strings attached to a strategic investment and the process would take much longer. The way that we started Transync was pretty straightforward. So I teamed up with a couple of really close friends of mine that have basically the same backgrounds. All of us used to run the corporate investment arms in the US for big Asian tech companies. And so myself, I did that for Samsung. The partners that I ended up working with did the same for firms like SoftBank, Foxconn, UMC, and Hikari Sushin. And what we do at TransLink is instead of serving a single mothership back home in Asia, we work with multiple corporations across the region of Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and China. And we look at all areas in technology from nuts and bolts, component materials, all the way to content and gaming, etc., and obviously, some of the leading trends out of Silicon Valley are of high interest, including artificial intelligence, AR, VR, robotics, and more recently, surprise, surprise, blockchain technologies. So you guys are kind of like a general Asiatic collaboration between various heads of corporate investing that are coming together to look at investments at tech generally with the, the hottest tech trends? Yeah, so each of us have kind of a specialty area. So in terms of the technology stack, for example, my former UMC partner invested in a lot of tech and component materials areas. I spent a lot of time on the device side as well as consumer mobile. And then I have another partner at SoftBank who looks at consumer tech, but also looks at digital health. Um, a former Mitsubishi Hikari Sushin guy, he's the enterprise software guy. And the former Foxconn guy looks at, you know, IoT, industrial, manufacturing, etc. So each of us have our specialties, as well as our geography that we focus on. And we focus on each of the geographies and the corporates in that region. So being the Korean guy in the team, I work very closely with the Korean conglomerates, like the Samsung, LG, Hyundai Motors, you know, Naver, Line, Kakao, and so on and so forth. Very interesting. Rob, I think you had a question, right? Yeah. So what really goes through a head of a venture capitalist like yourself when you're looking for new investments? Are you mainly focused on early stage startup sort of things? or uh, Yeah. Just... Yeah. I mean, I, I think for most venture capitalists, including myself, I think we're constantly looking for what is the next big thing, right? And we all know of some of the big success cases that came out of the technology disruptions coming from the internet, the telecom infrastructure, the mobile infrastructure play, cloud infrastructure, more recently, AR, VR, artificial intelligence, robotics, auto tech, and again, more recently, blockchain. And so what we're trying to do is we wanna make sure of a couple of things. We're looking for kind of the next generation of visionary entrepreneurs that are riding the wave of these trends of disruption at the same time that also have a track record of being able to execute. So if you think about it, there's a lot of folks, I think, that are either foreseers that can really ride the early wave, but at the same time, unless you execute and deliver, you know, you're not sustainable, right? So we all know in the search engine space, you know, Google was 
the 12th or 13th search engine that came out late to the market. And there was um, you know, several commercialized search engines out there in the market, but they did things better. So that's one way to do it. Other ways to do it is to be the first mover and continue to build momentum there. So when Amazon actually came out with the initial e-commerce platform that was focused on books, they executed the hell out of that and they were able to continue to build that out for each vertical that they went after. So yeah, well, that's what we're looking for. Was Amazon a first mover? You know, it's, it's actually hard to say because there were so many e-commerce plays at the time. But the point I was trying to make is they were the first, one of the many first movers that was able to dominate in their category and effectively became the default for the book category in e-commerce, right? And they were able to continue to roll that to different verticals. And so they've been able to combine kind of the early mover advantage with the execution capabilities and thus became the big giants that they are. So it all comes down to execution. Well, again, it's I think it's a combination. You do need, you know, the visionary entrepreneur that can catch these early waves, right? But Typically, there's more than a few entrepreneurs that catch the early waves. But ultimately, what distinguishes the winners from the losers is going to be the execution capability. Right. So a combination of timing and execution. Essentially. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you really measure execution when you're first meeting these visionaries? You know what? That's really um, a good question, because typically you would look at somebody's background in terms of what they've been doing before. But as we all know, in the case of once in a generation type entrepreneurs like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, you know, they dropped out of school to do this, right? So they didn't really have a track record. But if you think about it, by the time an institutional investor, a venture capitalist got a chance to meet them, they had already shown that they can deliver on initially the DOS OS or the DOS for uh, Bill Gates early on when they delivered that to the IBM group. And for Mark Zuckerberg, he had already launched the Facebook and with several, uh, you know, the traction in several regions and several universities before Peter Thiel put the first money in. So that's what you're looking for. You're looking for proof points and evidence that these guys can actually do what they plan to do. And um, at some point, there's always going to be, as an investor, you do need to take a leap of faith because sometimes the early data may not necessarily be kind of the... Uh, the full data set that you need to be fully confident. There never is. But you're basically willing to believe in the entrepreneur and go in for the ride. And there's always risk associated with that, but that's why you have the upside as well. So to me, venture capital seems a little like dating with potentially just as much emotion, but replace all the physical contact with more money. So how does, how does that work? Like who, who approaches whom? How does, how does that dance work? You know, I thought we were going to be talking about crypto and everything, but yeah, I'm happy to talk about venture investing. Um, I actually have more experience to that. We'll, we'll get more of the crypto side. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, it, it, it really varies all over the map. And, you know, w one thing that I think people may not fully appreciate unless you're in the industry is venture capital has become relatively mature. And what I mean by that is um, there's become uh, a certain level of specialization. So in the old days, in the 70s, when venture capital first came about, when the term was first coined, these were folks that you know had some entrepreneurial or some financial experience in backing. And they were basically trying to help other budgeting entrepreneurs you know, to get to kind of the first milestones, to get 
enough uh, traction to get to a prototype and MVP to get their first customers. And there's a big gap there because no bank is willing to make a loan on an idea, right? And so the concept of venture capital came where somebody's willing to bankroll an idea and you know, a group of entrepreneurs without any sort of collateral. And that's really the definition of venture capital when it started early on. So there wasn't really necessarily a sector specialization. There wasn't a stage specialization. And from a geography perspective, it was really centered around Silicon Valley and a few pockets in Boston and others where some of these uh, formerly successful executives or entrepreneurs were willing to back kind of the next generation of entrepreneurs. What's happened today is, you know, venture capital over the past 30, 40 years has become a lot more sophisticated. There is specialization. There are stage funds, so there's seed funds. There's more traditional Series A funds that we're more familiar with. There's growth equity funds. There's even mezzanine stage funds, right, from a stage perspective. And then sector-wise, you know, obviously there's IT and healthcare and clean tech as the major categories, and even more consumer products and other categories are specialized as well. But even within IT, you know, there's hardware focused, there's component focused. Some will only do enterprise software. Some will only do SaaS business models within enterprise software, right? So it's become a very specialized domain. And so in this day and age, each of the venture capitalists have their specialties, their focus areas. So it's typically a two-way street where entrepreneurs will try to look for the relevant venture capital firms for the stage and sector that they have, because obviously they don't want to waste their time and try to bank blanket approach all these different VCs because it's very time consuming for fundraising and pitching these concepts. At the same time, the venture capital firms themselves are also looking for the right entrepreneurs. And depending on the stage, they could either be looking for aspiring entrepreneurs that are just coming out of school, that are coming out of the research organizations or coming out of you know, the more established companies. Others could be looking for deals from you know, these demo days and whatnot to look for seed investments. Traditional Series A investors like ourselves are actually hoping that some of the seed investors will introduce some of their portfolio. So we're willing to meet those seed investors and seed companies uh, within their portfolio to see if there's anything relevant and so on and so forth. So it's really, uh, I mean, you said it well, I think it's very similar to dating in many ways and dating happens in all sorts of formats. The one key thing to remember though is you always want a warm introduction going into kind of a blind date because in many cases, it really is a blind date. You've never met the other person before. All you're relying on is who made the introduction and whether or not that referral comes from a credible source or not. And so cold calling, cold emailing rarely works because there really isn't any context there. That's why if you can't figure out a way to get a warm introduction to a particular investor that you'd like to meet, then that by default shows that you may not have necessarily the execution capabilities to execute on the business that you're trying to build if you can't find a contact at an investor that you want to talk to. Yeah, that, that was a pretty good description of it. I, I want to start getting back into the, the crypto side of things. Mm-hmm. So how, how does crypto investments, venture capital and crypto investments differ from 
what you've done in the traditional sector. Yeah, sure. It's been a learning experience for me. You know, I got sucked into kind of this interesting world of blockchain and crypto about four, four and a half years ago. And the way I invested is was uh, I was one of the first advisors and investors into a startup called Corbit. Corbit was started by an entrepreneur that I'd known for several years. And Tony approached me to give me an update on what he was working on. And he had introduced me to this interesting world of Bitcoin. And what he wanted to do was connect Korea, which is a relatively large economy, to the blockchain ecosystem by creating the first Bitcoin to Korean won exchange. And so that uh, startup Corbit was able to successfully raise a number of rounds of financing. The seed financing was kind of a party round. A lot of um, strong investors participated like... uh, Tim Draper, Naval Ravikant of AngelList, uh, David Lee of SV Angels, Pantera among the crypto funds and others. After four years or so, just last year, they actually got to a very successful exit where the founder of Nexon, which is one of the largest uh, gaming companies globally, decided that he wanted to increase his minority stake in Corbett to basically take over ownership. So that was a good exit for all of us. And through that four-year period, I was educated about what was happening in the blockchain crypto space. But really, it was probably in the past year or so where through a number of sources, one through my close friend David Park, who's kind of one of the ringleaders at the Facebook syndicate, so a bunch of Facebook product managers and engineers and whatnot, had a crypto and blockchain interest group that uh, evolved into one of the leading private uh, crypto syndicates. And so thanks to that, I got some exposure and was able to participate both as an advisor and an investor in a number of interesting projects, uh, including the BTOKEN project that we talked about, but also with my Korean connections, ICON was a project uh, that I was excited about, as well as uh, I mentioned Referium before and a number of others, including Telegram and a a few others. Yeah, those of you guys who don't know, those are all really big projects. Yeah, and so, I mean, you asked the question about what's different, right? So I've given you the background. It's interesting. So when I first jumped in about a year or so ago, I had to learn things all over again because the way that things were done in crypto world as or crypto land, as uh, my friend David would say, was very different. So if, if I were to try to do what I did in terms of due diligence prior to making any sort of investment decisions that I'm used to from my day job in venture capital, I wouldn't be able to make any investments whatsoever. I mean, it was a time, (laughs) as as you remember, right? As we all remember, it was a time when, you know, high tides were raising all boats and pretty much any sort of ICO project was getting funded and it was popping in terms of value. And ultimately, it was all about deal flow and who you know, and can you get access and allocation to any of these projects, right? And so it was so fast paced that in many cases, the due diligence process meant that you were basically reviewing the deck and the white paper and had to make a decision literally within 24 hours. In many cases, even less Holy than crap, that. Holy crap, 24 hours? They're like, here it is, figure it out. Bye. Yeah, are you, are you in or out, right? Yeah, here's the sign up sheet. Are you in or out? And so... That was very difficult for me to digest. And as a result of that, um, I didn't participate in most of those projects just because I didn't feel comfortable doing that. But what's interesting, fast forward to today, and I think 
I think many crypto investors will agree, especially at least in the US, since the SEC regulations have kicked in and it's been more scrutinized, it's actually become a lot more similar to traditional tech investing. You actually have more time to do due diligence. You're actually checking on the founders' backgrounds. You're making sure that the advisors that they've listed up are actually advisors and are actually doing real work for them. You're looking at the code. In many cases, they've launched an MVP. They've launched a platform. They are in usage. They have use cases that they can point to. And so it's become more traditional, almost like a seed stage investment with equity, which personally for me, I think is very healthy. I think we're all aware of some of the scandals that have happened in the crypto investing space over the past year or so. And ultimately, those are going to hurt the, you know, the, the very early stage of this industry. And so I think this is a healthy trend and uh, it gives more investors time to scrutinize. And frankly, it gives entrepreneurs reason to be more prepared, to be more thoughtful about their projects before uh, going out there and fundraising. Yeah, I totally agree. I see a lot of really new projects that don't necessarily understand what SEC regulations are about. It's really just to protect investors. Yeah, what's interesting is um, I've gotten to know some, some good entrepreneurs that have had good success cases over the years. In two specific cases, they were actually planning ICOs, and this was just a few months ago. And these are folks that have you know, had successful exits. They've raised venture capital from top-tier funds, but they were looking at this ICO opportunity and interest because obviously you know, the tokenization story made sense, but also from a fundraising mechanism, there was an argument to be made that it would be a lot more efficient to do it on an ICO track rather than a traditional create a pitch you know, meet all the venture capitalists, go through a due diligence process before fundraising, right? Mm -hmm. So they looked at the ICO track, but as soon as they saw the scrutiny that we would take, especially as they did more research into the SEC regulations and the process of a Reg D filing process, they just realized that for them, who could relatively easily raise equity, they decided to abandon their ICOs and just move forward with an equity raise. I think the projects, frankly, that you're still seeing that are trying to raise um, ICOs in the US, I may be a little bit biased, but in many cases are projects that may have difficulty raising traditional venture capital equity. And so really they don't have any other alternative and thus have to continue down this ICO path. Yeah, Rob, weren't you advising a group to uh, not do an ICO for all the problems and, and costs that come along with it. Yeah. Yeah. There are a few companies that have come up to me asking, you know, how do I do an ICO? It's like, you guys are so big. Can you help me with our smart contracts? And when I look at their business model and what they provide, it just, it doesn't make sense for them to have a token or it doesn't make sense for them to abandon what they currently have just to go into this ICO world. And like, so some of these guys are profitable and they're chugging along and, doesn't really, yeah, I, I just recommend not not throwing away a couple months of their time trying to raise ICO money when they don't need to. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for those projects that have an alternative to raise traditional equity or may not even need to raise money at all, it doesn't make sense for them to go down this path, right? I mean, what's interesting is I'm still seeing a lot of projects out of Asia where I think the regulation, the regulatory bodies have not been as clear or have decided that it's more of a free-for-all. And some of these projects, again, would have never gotten equity funding, right? They were in a position where they're dying because they're running out of cash. 
But with this ICO miracle and windfall, they've been able to raise large amounts of capital to continue to operate. So, I mean, I think it's great if you're an entrepreneur, you do whatever it takes to, you know, to survive. And if this is a means to fundraise, there's, there's no harm in that. You should go for it. On the other hand, investors should be wary, all right? Assuming that a project or a startup that wasn't able to generate enough investor interest for an equity round, can they really execute and deliver? And will the value of the tokens that you're purchasing be worth it as an investment? I mean, that remains to be seen. Yeah, I think maybe one reason uh, they jump into it is because they have this idea of instant liquidity, but even that's not always there. Well, yeah, instant liquidity when you're going to lose money on your investment. I mean, that doesn't really help, right? I mean, if you think about it, yeah. an ICO, again, is just one means of financing. And, you know, you could do crowdfunding through AngelList. You can do a Kickstarter project or an Indiegogo project. I mean, the good news is there's so many uh, democratized fundraising platforms available today. And ICO is just one of them. So that's, that's great. But we all have to remember that ICO and whatever fundraising platform that you use is just the first step in terms of fundraising. So you do the fundraising and then you still have to build the platform or product or service. And then you still have to, on top of that, build the business, right? And while a lot of people talked about when the whole ICO bubble was at its peak, is traditional venture capital dead? Are ICOs going to take over? The reality is ICOs are just one mean of, means of financing. But ultimately, the reason that experienced entrepreneurs still come back to venture capitalists and not to sound like kind of defending the whole industry here, but the reason that they come back to venture <laughs> capital, maybe I am a little bit kind of 18 years in this, <laughs> but, but yeah, but it, it really is because bit. what we do as a profession is to help entrepreneurs build their businesses. Right. And so in terms of building business, if you think about it, a business, it's really a combination of two factors. One, it's people and money, right? So it's typically you're providing the capital on the money side, and then you're helping to recruit the relevant people that can help the company do what they need to do. And on top of that, you're providing corporate governance, you're providing access to customers and partners, and you're providing additional advisory in terms of additional fundraising down the road as well, as well as thinking about exit options and so on and so forth, and developing the strategy together. So there's a lot of different elements that um, I think the venture capitals will, uh, capitalists would try to add value for. So yeah, I am biased. It's not just money. It's an entire service that helps the company grow. You know, one of the projects that I'm involved in also is a project that successfully raised an ICO, decided to go back into Y Combinator, go through their program, and is raising a round of equity financing because they ultimately believe that if they want to build a business, the value add that experienced venture capitalists can bring to the table is actually valuable for them to build out their business. So it's been interesting to observe not only kind of the traditional equity startups raising ICOs in what they call these reverse ICOs, but successful ICO projects now are raising equity. So it's, it's really interesting to observe that. In fact, I'd argue that 
some of the most successful ICOs are ones who already have some VC funding or some institutional funding that prove that, you know, they have, like you said, these connections, these these various things going for them that have allowed them to attract investors' attention. And if they don't have that, it seems like a red flag that they need the ICO to raise the money. So it's this weird, like, duality that, you know, an ICO is probably more attractive to someone who doesn't need it, but will ultimately be more successful if someone gets the institutional funding and exactly. then goes for the ICO yeah. or, or in reverse, like you said, doing the ICO and then, and then getting institutional funding. So, yeah. And that's why I see this conversions happening. It's been, it's been interesting. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that it's, it's been fun to watch this evolution in a relatively short amount of time, how it's gone from this free for all throw money at any project and everything would appreciate. And now it's become in a matter of months, much more like traditional scrutinized equity investing. It's quite interesting. So I have a question that's been bothering me that I think you'd be a good guy to answer. So I read this article that was talking about how with ICOs, with the generation of of tokens, the majority of the company's value was locked up in those tokens. And that traditional equity, which still exists in the company, you didn't have to dilute the equity by raising that money, wasn't as valuable anymore. As a VC, how do you guys look at that? Do you do you invest in the tokens themselves? Do you invest in equity? Do you do a package? How does that work? You know what? That that's actually a really good question, and it's a question that a lot of traditional venture capital firms are struggling with, right? And as we all know, there's been some very reputable firms that have jumped into the fray and have participated in some of these ICOs by buying tokens. You know who they are. It just in the recent Telegram. ICO, um, there's been a bunch of traditional big name firms that have jumped in and purchased tokens. So each firm has a different philosophy about this, right? On the one hand, there's a huge benefit of purchasing tokens instead of equity because there's immediate liquidity. That's one of the benefits that you get out of this. But at the same time, at the end of the day, you holding tokens, unless you have a substantial amount of tokens, uh, which is actually difficult to do because of how the ICO allocations happen you have very little or almost no say into corporate governance or management decisions whatsoever. So the way that venture capitalists are trained, right, in order for them to be influential and add value, they need a seat at the table uh, from a corporate governance perspective. And that's why typically when a lead investor raises around or leads around of financing, they will step up and join the board of that startup and are involved in all the major decisions, management decisions that that startup will make. So there's a trade-off between the two where, you know, are you looking for immediate liquidity or are you looking for the long-term and trying to add value and build that up? Now, if you can get the best of both worlds, meaning if you're willing to have, if you're able to have a relationship with a project where you buy in through tokens, but you still have enough of a relationship directly with the management team where you can provide the guidance and the value add, then that's ideal because you have the liquidity that helps, but at the same time, you can provide the value and you can continue to do what you would do as a long-term investor to support the company over the long run. To answer the other element of your question, how would you value these these companies. And that's been really tricky. So there's been cases, as I said, that projects that have successfully raised a large amounts of capital through an ICO are raising equity financing. How do you value that company? 
So this particular company does not have a lot of revenue, but they've raised you know, 30, 40 million dollars in ICO. And because that is an asset, you have to include that in the valuation, right? And so what I've seen happen is you can't ignore the cash value because that is directly reflected on the enterprise value of the company. But beyond that, I've seen projects that are willing to take a much, much, much less valuation on what they do as an entity to enable a financial investor to you know, feel it attractive enough as an investment to come on board with this. And so I do see a lot of confusion in the market. I do see a lot of different approaches, but nothing's been, I would say, set in stone at this time because you know, tokens are tokens and equity is equity. There isn't a fixed conversion between token and equity. Those are dealt completely separate on separate ledgers in different capitalization tables and have to be dealt as such. Yeah, so on the order of equity, how do you really decouple the value of the raise from the equity uh, value itself? Right, so as I said, that's still being sorted up. But at the end of the day, startup company valuations are all about negotiation. Okay, so let's say more mature companies with revenue and profits, they have public company comparables in terms of multiples on revenues and multiples on earnings, that it's relatively easier to come up with a valuation rationale. Um, and you can also argue for ongoing businesses, you can do discounted cash flow analysis. There's all sorts of valuation methods you can do. Now, at an early stage company that doesn't have revenue and customers, how do you do valuation? Well, it's really a negotiation between supply and demand. So if there's enough demand of investor interest that wants to put money in, then the company has the incentive to negotiate for a higher valuation, right? So there really isn't any fixed mechanism. Let me go back and try to explain what I was trying to explain earlier in a little more detail. So the value of a company is typically a combination of what you call enterprise value. So this is the team, their capability, what they're trying to do, the traction that they have today, and then the tangible assets, including cash. Those two combined create the value of the company. Okay. What I was trying to explain earlier, if you've done a successful ICO and you have, let's say, $30 million in the bank, that is cash. It's a liquid asset. And so that has to be included in the overall valuation of the entity, right? But in order to attract the best investors, this particular project that I'm familiar with decided that instead of charging a, a substantial premium of their enterprise value on top of the 30 million that they raised, they decided to actually reduce that to a minimum to make it attractive to get the investors on board. So instead of arguing because they've raised successfully 30 million, they could make they could have made an argument that our enterprise value should be at least another 30 million. And so our total valuation should be 60 million, right? But instead of doing that, let's say they actually decided to make it more attractive to the investors that they wanted to attract. We will set our enterprise value at 10 million and thus the 10 million plus 30 million would be only 40 million. So the valuation methodology and whatnot, especially at an early stage is all about negotiation anyway. 
And so there's no fixed mechanism. The only thing that you cannot argue against is you can't argue for a lower than cash reserve valuation, right? Right. It's pretty clear that they've raised that amount of money. You, you can't argue. It, it's a raw. It's a hard number. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would be a that would be one of yeah, the yeah. yeah that would be an awesome uh, arbitrage, right? You know, if somebody gave me a twenty million valuation and they had thirty million back, mm-hmm. I'd sell the company and make pocket a ten sense. million profit right then and there. So the discount comes in after you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But that's, again, all optional. I mean, if these guys didn't want to do that, they didn't have to do that, right? But they wanted to do this to attract the type of investors that needed to see at least some return multiple for them to uh, come on board with the investment. So I want to bring it back to, like, say, the average listener who's maybe interested in investing in crypto. What advice would you give them? I mean, you have all this investment background and know how to look at and vet all these companies what advice would you give to someone who uh, is maybe investing a few thousand dollars into cryptocurrency? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a question I get a lot. And, you know, the answer is relatively simple. The reality is to keep, you know, to actually keep these rules is actually not easy to do. Because every time you hear a pitch that excites you, it's kind of hard to avoid it. If you hear that somebody that you know and trust or has a reputation that's investing in a project, it's hard to ignore. But the principles should be pretty straightforward. Uh, and this applies across the board, whether it's you're investing in crypto or stocks and bonds or equity or private equity or venture capital, seed funds, startups, whatever you're investing in. The two rules that I live by is invest in areas that I'm familiar with so I can add value or I invest in the person that I know and trust, right? So it has to be, for me, one of the two. What I mean by that is investing in areas that you're not familiar with. So let's say in the world of crypto, typically there's going to be either an infrastructure play or an application play. And if you are already familiar with the infrastructure side enough to know that the problems exist, you are familiar enough to know that who is going after and trying to solve the problem. If you're familiar with all of that, then you can actually be in a position to ask the right questions to properly evaluate the opportunity. The biggest mistake that I think investors can make is not knowing what you don't know and thus not asking the question because you don't know which questions to ask, right? So if you're in a situation where just because it's a so-called hot deal, that people are excited about, that you know, big name investors and advisors are a part of. But unless you can evaluate the opportunity for yourself and know which questions to ask, I would, I would be really careful about those opportunities. On the other side, there could be areas that you're not familiar with. But if you know the entrepreneur, you have a personal relationship, you know the background of the entrepreneur, and you believe that entrepreneur, has what it takes from their experience to make it successful, then you're betting on the entrepreneur. So you invest either on the knowledge of the space and the industry, or you bet on the entrepreneur uh, that you trust. And it's either one or the other. If it's not one of those two criteria, then I would not invest. The other thing to keep in mind, I think, is the investing side is actually the easier side. The harder part is to, to exit. 
And, you know, in some cases you'll have the fortune to exit when everybody else uh, exits. Let's say if there was an M&A transaction where it was 100%. What's an M&A transaction? I'm sorry, it's uh, an acquisition, right? A merger and acquisition. So let's say I invested in company A and company B, big company came in and bought the company for $100 million for cash. Then I don't need to worry about it exiting and timing and whether or not to sell now or later because everybody gets the same amount distributed depending on my ownership stake. But if a company goes public potentially, then I still have to deal with the timing of when I exit or not. And so the exi exiting part is the hard part. And then one last thing that I'll say, it's not easy to do, but you always need to take money off the table when you're ahead. And so in some ways, investing in crypto land is almost like you're in a casino and you're on this massive ride where you're at the craps table, things are going really well, you're piling up, but there's also a risk that you can lose everything pretty quickly. But the smarter investors there in the casinos always try to pocket after every hand, like a hundred dollar chip in their pockets so that they know when they walk out of the casino, they've locked in their gains, right? And that's really hard to do in practice. Even I can't do it most of the time, but some disciplined investors I know have done that really well. And so, the best feeling when you're investing is when you're playing with house money, where you've already locked in a return by putting back your principal, putting back some of the gains. And then whatever outcome happens at the end of the day, when you leave the casino, you could have made a big, won a big jackpot. And even in the worst case scenario, you're walking out there and have made a return on your investment. So in summary, areas that you know, people that you know, and pocket when you're ahead. So when you've made money, start start selling off some of that so you can make sure you're only investing with house money. Exactly. I mean, again, easier said than done, but um, some of the smarter investors have done that. And yes, sometimes you'll gain less because you know, you're not going all in on every hand, right? But but then you'll lose less and in the long run it's a better strategy. Exactly. You, you eliminate the risk of losing everything. Exactly. Even even when you make the right strategies, it can gain you less short term, but in the long term, the odds end up in your favor if you if you make the right moves. Yeah, it's hard to keep playing when you have no money. <laughs> exactly. Because you can come back to the casino another day and try it, right? Yep. Yep. Jay, do you have any anything you'd like to leave the audience with that you think they should know? Any Any like teachable things from your experience or anything else like that? Well, you know, I, I think I've talked about kind of the way I think about investing, especially from a personal level. Maybe the other thing I'll say, because I get into this argument a lot with some of the more conservative traditional investors of why are you investing in crypto, right? Because they always point to the horror stories and the hacking incidents and, you know, some of the projects that didn't go well on the ICO side where you know, the founders uh, drove off in Lamborghinis with all the ICO money. Um, but here, here, here's my here's my argument to them. It's always Lamborghinis, never other cars, never Ferrari. Exactly. So I think a basic principle in financial investing is what's called portfolio theory, right? So portfolio theory means that you can actually optimize your return, uh, your risk-adjusted return by diversifying the portfolio across uh, assets that carry different volatility, right? And there's a good argument to be made that crypto investing today 
and crypto assets today are a highly volatile asset. I think that's hard to argue on a relative basis versus, let's say, gold or natural resources or stocks and bonds and whatnot, right? And so then the question really is, if you believe in portfolio theory, and even if you assume that crypto assets are the most volatile asset, then you're not doing a service to yourself by not investing in it. Meaning, from a portfolio perspective, it actually makes sense for you to allocate some of your assets into a high volatility asset, right? The only question then you need to ask yourself is depending on your risk tolerance and depending on what percentage of your total asset base can you live without, because there is a risk that you might lose everything, then the question really to invest in crypto is not a question of yes or no. The question is really how much or what percent of your asset base would you invest in? And for some people, conservatively, it could be 1%. The more aggressive people could invest up to 20% or even more. But it's not, an, it's not a yes, no answer, in my opinion. And so, you know, I, I don't know if there's going to be any non-crypto investing folks that listen to this podcast, but if they are, I really think it's something to think about because it really goes well with the portfolio theory. And again, there's going to be some downside, but um, with some of the upside opportunities, it's it's worth considering. Especially now that the market's down a little bit, it's a good time to jump in. Exactly. Well, we'll find out. Is it worth we'll taking out. some maybe, risk maybe on that? Maybe it is. Yeah, it might go down even more. Who knows? All right. So uh, where can people find more about you, Jay? You can always come to my LinkedIn profile, Jay Um, or you can come to our website at transcendcapital.com. I'm pretty active on Facebook, less so on Twitter. And I think I speak for everyone in the audience, or at least the people who aren't VCs, uh, that we learned a lot from you today, Jay. And it was awesome having you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to a Bit Cryptic podcast. A Big Cryptic podcast is hosted by Alain Leon, Dang Du, and myself, Jeff Peterson. Show notes are by our editor-in-chief, Dang Du. Show production and editing is done by the miracle maker, Joanna Marie Nicholas. Website is by Sammy Toucan and his team at Pack Surge Media. Remember, nothing we say in this show is meant to be financial advice. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you for listening, and remember... Keep it cryptic.